This podcast is brought to you by the Mountain West News Bureau with support from America Amplified, a community engagement journalism project. I'm Nate Hedgie, and you're listening to Facing West. Right now, I'm in the middle of a punishing 60-mile bicycle ride towards the town of Salmon in central Idaho. It's a hot afternoon. The wind is blowing, and the road barely has a shoulder. Some of the trucks give me a wide berth. Others almost touch me. It's terrifying. Now, if you're just joining me on this ride, let me give you a little background. I'm a journalist with the Mountain West News Bureau, and I'm spending about a month riding my bicycle and talking with as many people as I can about how America and the West are changing these days. I'm following the continental divide through some of the most rural parts of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and Colorado. And I'm riding a bicycle because I figure I'll go slower and I'll meet more people. But man, right now, I wish I had a car. It feels like there are a lot more cars out west these days. There's a reason for that. A lot of people are starting to move here from out of state, you know, and they and they bring a lot of money with them. I think people are looking to get up here and I think that it just is, it's so much changed so quickly that it makes people uncomfortable. They want it now and they want it quick and they want all the, the Facebook and Instagram and all this stuff. Don't bring your mentality with you. On this episode, we're going to be talking about change. It's something everyone I spoke to agreed with. The West is transforming. Some towns are growing, fast, gentrifying. Others are fading away, dying. All of this change is frightening. Some people are digging in their heels, others see opportunity. So grab your helmet, saddle up, and get ready for the ride, because you're listening to Facing West's first season, Across the Great Divide. Salmon, Idaho is a pretty quaint place. Downtown, there's a statue of a grizzly bear grabbing a fish from a stream, and a bar has a giant owl outside with arrows sticking out of its chest. There's also a fly fishing shop. So do you own this place, or? I don't know okay. the owner. Um, his name is Steve. Okay. Sierra McAdams is working the register. She agrees to an interview. She's wearing a red plaid shirt, glasses, nose ring. She looks like an urban exile to me, and I'm right. Yeah. Um... So I've been in Salmon now for about six months. She moved here from Idaho's capital city, Boise. It's been almost like the reverse of a culture shock. You know, I loved Boise. I thought it was going to be my home forever. But the city was growing so rapidly. Um, expenses were so high. And it just wasn't the type of lifestyle that fit who I was. And so coming to Salmon, it's been like almost taking a step back five, ten years and Life is slower, it's easier, and I've completely fallen in love with it. It's not hard to see why. Salmon is nestled into some foothills on the edge of a high sagebrush desert. It's got a river that runs through it, lots of wild open spaces. But there's also a lot of private land around here, big ranches. And McAdams worries that rich out-of-towners will come in with all of their money and buy them out. You're getting a lot of people coming in and saying, oh, I'm gonna buy all this land up. I'm gonna, you know, put an apartment complex there. Or I'm gonna put a big mansion or whatever it is. And 
I think that really freaks me out. And you saw that a lot in Boise, and you're seeing it here as well. You're also a transplant to here. Have you gotten any flack or anything else like that? Um, no, I haven't. Um, I think that I contribute to a small town in a way that some people may not if they were to move into a small town. Um, I respect what the government is here. I respect the economy, um, what people are trying to do here, and they're trying to preserve it, and that's what I want to do. And by no means am I a wealthy person. I'm 25 and, to be honest, dirt poor. <laughs> and so the effect that I have is really not that big when it comes to the growth of salmon Idaho. When you say pre- preserving, what do you think? I hear that word come up a lot in my conversations. Kind of, How do you de- define preserving what salmon is? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's kind of mixed because some people could be like, well, this is an old Republican town and, you know, we want it to stay that way. And it's like, you know, I can see that to an extent. Like, there's a lot of people who want that to stay the same. But I want, if anything, like, I want the small town feeling, that old Wild West feeling to stay the same, where you can hop in your vehicle and you can go park on the side of the road anywhere and go sleep. Or you can walk out your back door and go hike wherever you want. And I think Salmon is just this gem of a town and not a lot of people know about it and I want it to stay that way but unfortunately that's not going to happen in the world that we live in you know it's it's a rapidly growing world we are in but here's a thing to remember growth and change are actually two constants in the American West especially over the past two centuries since white settlers and the U.S. government grabbed this land from indigenous tribes since then It's seen wave after wave of new ideas and new people. There were loggers, miners, environmentalists, wannabe cowboys, wealthy retirees, and now remote workers from the cities. Many of them are moving to the pretty parts of the West, those places you see in coffee table books or in movies, and to here, to probably the most famous range in the West, the Tetons. Riding across Idaho's Snake River Plain, I see them. Towering above the wildfire haze in the distance. Massive, hooked mountains. They look like they're out of a storybook. I get a little emotional. That's amazing. That's, it's just, uh, it feels, it feels pretty cool to have biked this far. Like I left from my house on this bicycle and now I can see the Tetons. They're magnificent. But as I ride closer, I notice that next to cattle pastures, there are these clusters of huge log mansions, chic restaurants, golf courses. And to me, it looks like a Disneyland for the wealthy. As I'm cruising along this one dirt road, I spot a guy building a fence. He doesn't look very rich. I mean, he's got a nice pickup truck, but he's wearing a baseball cap and has the red sunburned face of someone who works a lot of days outside. Name's Jody Burnside. Originally grew up here in the valley, local name. Burnside owns a construction company, as well as a Japanese steakhouse and sushi restaurant. He's doing pretty well financially. After all, nearby Jackson Hole is the richest valley in the country. And those rich people need homes to live in and they need to eat. But this growth has really changed this valley, at least since the days when Burnside was a kid. I could drive from here to Victor and pass four cars. But now, yeah, now you just bumper to bumper all the way. What's driving it? Well, the money started in Jackson Hole, but everything's been pushed over here. Then this valley got kind of discovered, 
everybody's getting to seize it now. And, you know, it's always the view of the Tetons is what I see people always coming here to look for. What's your reaction to that change? Are you happy about it or Love mixed? It. You do? Well, it made, makes things more valuable. You know, now you got something to work towards, your land, your value, and everything. Only thing I don't like is we don't want to bring the California attitudes into our little valley. We grew up here and lived here our whole life. What kind of Californians are you seeing come in? Because I'll talk with other folks and, man, I've talked to a lot of Californians, I'll be honest with you, on this trip. I've told some of them to stay home. <laughs> they didn't like that. We're not that part, so. But what kind of Californians are you, are you seeing, like liberal Californians come out of here? Or are you seeing liberals, conservative ones? Like Democrat liberals, people trying to change our ways to their ways. You know, we live here for a reason. That's why we're here. And what's your reaction when people try to push that kind of stuff? You know, they move into the area pretty new and fresh. Um, but don't go around here. But there's getting to be enough of them that they're kind of getting their way. You know, I grew up here in the mountains, hunting, fishing, living off the land, not living off, you know, like TV and money, like I said, and government was nothing, no part of our life. We could, we were free, we do whatever we want. The changes that happen here is they block off the roads. He's talking about wealthy people moving in, buying up branches, and blocking off access to public lands for people who've lived in this valley for generations. You know, we made those trails when we were kids. We rode those mountains and cleaned those trails. And to go up there now, it's like I'm a bad guy. How do you how do you square that? You know, because you are seeing that growth and the change, right? Like the change in those mountains that you grew up as a kid and everything else like that. Same time, you're making like good money off of of those folks coming in and everything else like that. How do you square that? I mean, what do you mean? How do you figure that? Well, if, make no money off of them. Well, no, the growth and everything else like that, right? Like people moving in here. Well, you know, the the thing with that is, is you got to either grow with it or get out of it. You know, and a lot of people don't know how to grow with it. So, people like us that do development, do business and stuff like that, we're all for it, but we see the other side of it as well. It raises our taxes, it raises our schools, it raises different problems as we go along. But at the end of the day, Burnside accepts that here, under the shadow of the Teton Mountains, growth is inevitable. You gotta be able to change with it or you always just get left behind, you know? Getting left behind is another story of the West. Because for every Jackson Hole or Teton Valley, there's also a Jeffrey City. Jeffrey City is a town that the whole world left behind. It's in central Wyoming, surrounded by desert mountains, and a few decades ago, it was a boom town. A nearby uranium mine created hundreds of jobs in a hurry. Apartment complexes were built, churches, a bowling alley, but then the mine went belly up and almost everyone left. And now Jeffrey City looks like an American Chernobyl, a modern day ghost town. Windows are all boarded up, the paint is peeling, grass is growing between the cracks in the pavement. Only a few dozen people still live here. As I cycle past one house, a dog busts out of the door and chases me. He stops at a fence line and I keep riding weaving through the quiet streets and eventually back towards the highway, where there used to be a gas station. But it closed, and now a potter named Byron Seeley lives in it. He bought the place for cheap. Very cheap. Like 10000 or something like that? I mean, Very cheap. <laughs> what do you like about Jeffrey City? A very cheap building. Is that the only thing you like about it? No. Uh... 
That's the main reason, oh, because I don't have to pay rent and it's the pressure off. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't live here. But there's other things I like about it. I like I don't have any neighbors. Um, I like the weather right now. It's a warm, sunny autumn day, light breeze. We're surrounded by yellow foothills and sagebrush desert, and Seely's gray blonde hair is tucked underneath a beanie. He's wearing a yellow University of Wyoming cutoff t-shirt. He's transformed this gas station into an artist's studio. It's easily the brightest, most lively spot in Jeffrey City. He gives me a tour. There are yellow and blue bowls, beautiful mugs, and shot glasses with holes in them. Sometimes I take it and shoot it with a gun. This one's been shot with a 22. A 22 rifle. He tells me that tourists love buying these shot shot glasses. But the shooting scares his best friend, Floyd. Floyd doesn't like it at all. Floyd is a dog, a little mellow pit bull cattle dog mix. And a person needs a dog out here. This is empty, lonely country. But for Seely, it's an oasis from everything else that's happening in America. Do you pay attention to politics nationally at all much? No, not as little as possible. I'm a political insouciant. What does that mean? Well, insouciant is a word I learned from this gentleman that was into politics. And I tried to tell him about pottery, and he said, man, I'm a pottery insouciant. So I said, what does that mean? He says, it means that you don't care and you don't know and don't care. I'm a mechanical insouciant, I'm a political insouciant. I don't want to learn how to fix cars. I don't know how to fix cars. Same way with politics. I just don't have very much interest. Out here in this place the whole world left behind, it's easy to ignore the political circus. Jeffrey City exists in the slowest backwater currents of America. There are a lot of towns out west like Jeffrey City, forgotten outposts that have flatlined for decades. We don't have the amenities that most people from cities want, and we are pretty isolated. Michelle Burdick is a realtor in tiny Dubois, Wyoming. It's about 100 miles northwest of Jeffrey City nestled near the Wind River Mountains, about an hour's drive from Grand Teton National Park. Dubois used to be a logging town, home to a sawmill, but that industry dried up in 1988. Burdick doesn't necessarily miss it. You know, big logging trucks going through, the air was, the, the air was kind of polluted with the, it belching, you know, smoke out of it. But that belching sawmill was also a job creator. Now Dubois has reinvented itself as a tourist town, but it's tough. It's hard to make a living here, and most people work two and three jobs to support their family. She says the number of kids going to school here has dropped by about half over the past couple decades. Working class families are moving away. But here's the weird thing. The real estate market in Dubois has been booming. Ever since COVID started, um, it seems like all of a sudden, Everybody is looking to get out of big places with big populations and people are just buying them up left and right and they don't even know, they don't even know what it's like here. It, it kind of scares me that you're going to have the same kind of people that move here that go, oh, this is a sweet little small town, but, but we don't have this and we don't have that. And pretty soon they bring it all with them 
and they have exactly what they left behind that they wanted to leave. So, you know, I think it, I think growth is okay, but, but you don't want to create the same hell you left. This is the tricky balance. Wanting your community to grow and be healthy, but then fretting about how all these new people will change your town. Burdick worries that Dubois is just becoming another retirement community. There's a lot of retirees moving here, um, which is surprising considering their age and that they are from big cities and that we don't have the medical. Rather than retirees, Burdick wants a few small companies moving in. A couple of good paying jobs could go a long way to keeping working class families in town. You know, in a big city, if you employed five or 10 people, it's not gonna have a huge impact. But in a town this size, if you employed five or 10 people, that is huge. That's where Burdick sees a path forward, a sustainable way to grow. About a week later, I'm cycling towards the Colorado border. The famous Wyoming wind is blowing hard. I'm planning to meet up with Danny Bureau. He heard about my trip on social media and reached out, wanted to grab a beer and talk about his new hometown, Saratoga, Wyoming. So I can have a beer eventually too. Um, so we meet on the deck of the restaurant he owns. No, not at all, not at all. You should have a beer. Bureau's wearing a flat-brimmed baseball cap and a bandana for a mask. He's effusive about Saratoga. Everybody in Wyoming knows Saratoga, but they don't want anybody, they don't want you to tell other people about it. And so it is still, it isn't a sleepy town by any means, but it still isn't, it's not on the map in a big way. Bureau is helping put it on the map. He's originally from Denver, but he got tired of all the traffic, the crowded trails, the pace of life. He wanted to open up a farm-to-table restaurant somewhere pretty and quiet. And Saratoga is that place. It's got great fishing, lots of public lands, but being from the big city? Um, there was resistance. I needed to prove myself that I wanted to be here. They'd seen a lot of businesses come to town and not succeed. Um, they could see that we were dumping a lot of effort and money into this building, into what we were doing here. Um, and even during COVID, there were, I heard from people in town that we weren't going to reopen. I was being told we weren't going to reopen. <laughs> so yeah, there was, there was I don't want to say resistance. I mean, nobody ever tried to slow us down or stop us, but there was, I'll say, a lack of belief that, that we understood what this town took. And why do you think that people out west, like, you're saying something that I've heard time and time again on this trip, which is like, especially in small towns, there's a concern about outsiders, right? Like, there's always like, you know whether you're from Colorado or California or something else like that. Like, what do you think drives that? You know, there's a there's a real comfort in these small towns and knowing everybody that's here, you know, and again saying that it's the worst kept secret. Um, they definitely like the pace of life and they like what's here. And change is difficult for anybody. And in a big city, stuff can change all the time. And within little neighborhoods, the same thing happens and people don't want that business coming to their neighborhood. It's just that this town effectively is one neighborhood and what I've tried to say to people here because I know we brought something different we brought a different energy we're targeting a different kind of crowd um, but the growth is coming I think people are looking to get up here and I think that it just is it's so much changed so quickly that it makes people uncomfortable um, but you know you can you can try and guide the growth or you can be controlled by it and that, that's kind of it like we're going to grow we're not we're not in a downturn period you're growing or you're dying we're growing. 
there it is again, that cycle, growing and shrinking, boom and bust, adapt or die. Right now, there are more people than ever before living out west, millions of us, all moving around trying to find that perfect slice of paradise. But there's also another kind of change that's happening out here and across the region, one that could put all of this rampant growth in jeopardy. I can smell it in the air as I'm bicycling towards a farmer's market in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Every breath feels short. I'm stuffy. The sky is washed in a thin orange haze. My biggest concern is that big forest fire that's burning about seven miles from my house. Noah Brooks is hanging out near his stand at the farmer's market. The fact that it didn't rain June, July, and August, but maybe three times. He's a rancher that recently moved here from Denver. He's wearing a floppy cowboy hat and a vest. Some people say it's a cycle. Some say it's the, the carbon monoxide. All the, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I do know we're drying up, and I do know these forest fires are going to become a bigger and bigger deal unless we can start to figure out how to, how to slow this climate change problem down. Climate change is a dark cloud hanging over all this growth in the West. And with that ethos of adapt or die, Brooks is trying to adapt by giving up on cattle and raising yaks instead. Yak eats a third of what cattle do. That's right, yaks. They're, they sustain well in Mongolia, which is not uh, known for high vegetable growth or anything. It's a, it's a real arid area. Um, and so I think, I think we all have to do our best. For me, maybe bringing yaks is my best way of trying to help our community and being a little bit more sustainable. I don't know how we're going to create the water to flow, but it is what it is. Brooks sees more environmental peril coming down the line. He worries that we're so divided over money, or growth, or politics, that we can't come together and solve this existential crisis. This conversation reminds me of something that happened early in my trip. I was riding in Idaho's Lemhi Valley, and there were these two fawns grazing near the road. It was a peaceful scene. But as soon as they saw me, the deer spooked. They ran. One slammed into a fence, got his neck stuck and panicked, I felt terrible. But it's also a reminder that our very existence changes everything. We move into a town that we love, shake up its character. We build houses in fire-prone forests. We drink the West's dwindling water supply. Everything we do creates ripples. In our next episode, we're going to dive deep into a phrase I hear a lot on this trip. Preserving our way of life out here in the West. Hunting, fishing, the way of life that we love around this place. A lot of folks define that way of life as being friendly to your neighbors, lending a helping hand. I certainly experienced that a lot on my trip. But I'm also a white guy who grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. I fit in. There are many people who don't. People do look at me more different. Sometimes people ask me what the shit in my face is. That's next on Facing West. I'm Nate Hedgie with the Mountain West News Bureau. Our sound designer is Liza Yeager. Artwork by Luke Anderson. 
The Mountain West News Bureau is a consortium of NPR member stations covering the region. Our partner stations include Wyoming Public Media, Boise State Public Radio in Idaho, KUNC in Colorado, KUNR in Nevada, KUNM in New Mexico, and the O'Connor Center for the Rocky Mountain West in Montana. Our managing editor is Kate Concannon.